Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, Stratford is the country town northeast all around the Mallee, and quoting from Jenny Ackland's book, it's a wide and sandy land that produced quiet men and tough women. Well, welcome back to 3CR, Jenny Ackland. Thanks so much, Jen. Thanks for having me back. Well, quiet men and tough women in your book, Little Gods. Hmm. Mm, there's three sisters in the Nash family and they met three brothers in the Lovelock family. Two married and that means one is left over. William and Bruce Lovelock married Rue and Audia Nash. And they've got cousins that, and in the families that spend a lot of time together and there's one left over, and one of those is Clegworth Lovelock. Now, what kind of name is Clegworth Lovelock? It's not your standard name, that's true. Um, I I think I made it up. Someone asked me and said, so where did that come from? And I, I think I made it up. I mean, there may well be a Clegworth rattling around in the world somewhere. Um, I, <laughs> I like having fun with names, and I don't really... Um, I think it's a real opportunity to to invest or to insert some sort of character into a name. And, I mean, what you get from Clegworth is going to be different for different people but I don't know he just his character it's not it's not a Jeffrey or it's not a um, um, oh, William or I was going to say David but <laughs> sorry um yeah and William and Bruce they are yeah I mean that just yeah distinguishes between the characters and then we have the three sisters we have uh Thistle hmm. Rue and Audia Audra Audra yes yes and again I think for Audra and Rue I had different different names and they were a bit close, a bit similar and um, a reader said you need to distinguish them. So I came up with Rue and obviously that has a second meaning um, other than just being her name. Mm. And Thistle I got from, um, I was doing other reading and I was reading about Christina Stead, um, her biography, and um, I think her her husband's second wife was called Thistle. And I thought, what a name. Yes. Let me prickly, steal that. Prickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and prickly, yes. So we have the families and then we have a reflection. And this is where I'd like Jenny Ackland to read a little from her book, Little Gods. You carry your past with you and along the way it repeats indigestibly, lodged like a rock in the belly, the gullet, the bowel, wherever it is a person carries their messes and shame. As the years started to pull behind her like toffee, her mind always managed to find itself at her uncle and aunt's farm. And whenever she returned to those dark, sticky years, it was still surprising how it all unravelled so quickly the summer she turned 12. So who is this? So this is from the point of view of... This is Olive Lovelock, so daughter of Audra and Bruce. Um... And she's, well, obviously it says there that that this is written from the perspective later, so she's looking back, and then we get into the story of the summer when she turned 12. Now, Olive is a lot braver than lots of the other kids around that time. She's going to disuse shacks, underground tunnels, sneaking out in the middle of the night, 
driving the ute, this is 12-year-old, standing up to bullies and commanding her cousins and best friend Peter. Now, that was a lovely relationship with Peter. Uh, Mm. This is Jenny's words. Peter adhered to her even though she picked her scabs and sometimes her nose. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Peter's a very loyal... um, I think somewhere else he's referred to as a lovelorn lieutenant or lieutenant. he he's a very loyal friend. He really sees something in Olive that he admires, and um, she's she has a lot of personal power and a lot of confidence. And she just goes at life. She takes risks, and you say that she's very brave, but maybe there's a bit of you know silly or a bit, you know, sometimes she can be stupid like all of us. Um, but their relationship, it does you know there's there's there is an arc there, so um whether he's still that lovelorn lieutenant towards the end mm. there's another family in town too, the Sanders families mm. and uh it's a large fl- family, a lot of boys in there, blamed for leaving dead animals around the mm. town, and one of them threatens her with words, yes, Luke. What does Luke say? So Luke is, I think he's a little slightly older or about the same age as as Olive. Actually slightly older but has been held back so he's still in the same year level. Um, He's, the whole family is very menacing um, and there is one one sister, Snooky, um, but the boys are all particularly menacing and he does threaten Olive at the local pool one day and uh, sets something in motion. Sort of suggests that there was a death in the family. That, yes, that that, um, that that Ollie Olive didn't really learn know about, and so this sort of sets off a whole chain of reactions with a whole lot of things about mothers, mothers and child, children coming through the book. Mm, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of, I suppose, if you could say, there's one of the themes. It is about loss, and it's about lost children or lost. Young mm. babies. Rue says at some stage, some people aren't meant to be mothers, mm. which oh, hurts incredibly. And But Olive has always been protective. You know, she went out on a rabbit shooting um, incident and she was so worried about all these baby rabbit rabbits and she sort of questioned whether the mother rabbits protect them. <laughs> and then there's the baby turtles being born that only one in a thousand survive. And then mm. we're all talking, you know, about the incident of the dingo taking the baby. <laughs> yes, so that's referenced. I mean, that's the, the time frame. Mm. Lo- um, losing babies and Clegg's job as a lawyer. Yes, yeah, so Clegg um, is a lawyer and he's taken on some new clients, some new work and that is um, they are women who have banded together and they were um, they had babies forcibly taken from them or sneakily taken from them during the fir- forced adoption years in, in Australia that were at their peak, so to speak, in the 50s through the um, early 80s. So that's, mm. that's a new case that he's taken on to help them. More, yes, yes. So more lost babies. Uh, more lost babies. And then um, Olive finds a photograph hidden away and it's of her father with a little baby with red hair and she takes it upon herself to find out what happened to my sister Aster. She's she's a rather keen detective, isn't she? She, she is. I mean, she reads lots of books and she's um, uh, she's quite prideful about her 
mental capacities. You know, she's got this aunt who, you know, says we, we are women of magnificent brains and so she sets off as a self-styled child detective, I suppose. She listens for secrets by hiding under the veranda mm. or behind curtains and she always wears this pair of binoculars yes, <laughs> to yes. spy on people. Um <laughs> Her this this thistle, her auntie, uh, who it, it often doesn't quite tell the truth, but it quotes. No, in the Bible, it says that people are the little gods, which means they have the power to do things. They make baddies pay. That you should do whatever you can to make things right. So this is what Oliver uh, uh, Olive decides to do: is take revenge, really. That's for right. What she thinks happened to that baby. That's right. And she goes, sets off on this course and just barrels at it. Like I said before, she just launches into things. Um, She thinks she knows everything and she thinks she's smart in that way that children can do. And, you know, many adults can as well, um, but just won't, won't be told necessarily. And so gets set on a course. um, And yeah, she, she does. She sets out on a very vengeful course of action. She does. (laughs) Which brings about a number of issues. Look, through this book, and I'm talking about Little Gods by Jenny Ackland, there's such a beauty of language. Uh, Olive's grandmother's diary brings in words like liminal and windishens. And her grandfather, who knows a lot about wood, and Olive is named after the wood in the Bible, so she thinks that she's God's religious wood. You know? mm, yes. Um and then there's her aunts and the, the uncles who talk to, to children in a very different way. Well, Thistle, the auntie we know, will answer any question absolutely as honestly as she can to the kids. Rue, the other auntie, uses medical terms. Rue's, I mean, they're all unusual in their own ways. Uh, Rue, Rue's an ex-nurse um, and she does, you know, use those <laughs> quite inappropriate sophisticated medical terms to talk about things um, like pyrexia for, or, you know, the child's pyretic instead of feels hot, you know, or has a temperature. Instead of snot. That's right, yes. So, you know, she, 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 I mean, they're quite, what's the word? Um, Informed. Informed, but also a bit, a bit posh, a bit posh, you know, or uh, thinking they're a bit posh. Yeah. And then we have Uncle Clegg who um, likes to teach the kids Latin and Mm. so has a sobriquet, sobriquet, a a French word for nickname for them Mm. all in Latin. Yes, yes. And, oh, you're going to want me to say. No, I don't. I I, I think (laughs) my favourite one was um, Rue, who was very uh, proud of her roses. So she, uh, he had, in Latin it was pick the roses, but sometimes he changed to prick of the roses. That's right, to make her laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as um, look, the the kids at this age, there's always an interest in bodily functions and Mm. especially for Olive coming and turning 12, that that change in a body and and everything but she she her favorite book to read is a medical book of things going wrong isn't it yes well she she become what had a phase where she was obsessed with Rue's nursing book so they they poured through that and looking at all the the uh, graphic photographs of various medical conditions but the recent the, the, the thing that she's now really into is a um 
it's like a things you wouldn't believe. So it, it talks about spontaneous combustion, spontaneous combustion, <laughs> lightning strikes, all those sorts of you know natural phenomena that can um, be really really fascinating to to children. And I remember being so fascinated with the Guinness Book of Records and mm. and those sorts of books. Um, so yes, yeah, she becomes obsessed with the idea of spontaneous combustion. That that um, and it's, it was usually women, you know, just sitting in front of the fire might just spontaneously combust and there are photos of of burned out rooms and um yeah so she finds that very fascinating talking about women thistle she's a well well, i'm sorry to say it's spinster (laughs) she is a spinster yes and um she has a, a thought about feminism and if i may quote from uh jenny ackland's book little gods people don't like it when a girl is strong And while we think it's men who try to control us, it's the mothers mostly. There's nothing so powerless as a girl child. And what are women but former little girls grown up? Which is why we have to enact and reach. You are crossing over shortly. Better be equipped. Yeah. Hmm. And Thistle and her sisters Rue and Audra, they had a problematic mother. You don't get much of that in the book, but there are certainly allusions to um, a mother who was somewhat tyrannical and and heavy-handed with them. So, you know, it's also about damage and that sort of generational or internet generational damage. I didn't want to write a book that was really earnest and heavy and dark. So I I think and I hope that there's humour in there. But there are also those allusions to that sort of passed on damage. Well, we start with um, uh, Olive turning 12 and she's hugging a tree and she sees orange. She's sort of feeling happier within Mm. herself. And at the end, she is also. But it's a big year. Yes, or even not not quite a year. It was like a few months, I think. Um, yeah, so Orange is there in the opening pages and in the closing pages. Um, an, an earlier working title was The Feeling of Orange and I had a lot more allusions to colours through it, which sort of came out. Um, but to me, Orange, like nostalgia, there is a lot of nostalgia in the book and Orange somehow goes with nostalgia and it goes with sunny boys and it's the sun and it is a happy, warm colour. So, Little Gods, a strong and young girl, tenacious to find the answers, also learns that the truth doesn't always set you free. (laughs) Mm. Okay, thank you very much, Jenny Ackland and her book Little Gods. It's an Alan and Unwin release. Well, it seems there are connections. The truth doesn't always set you free. seems to have parallels with the book I'm about to do. Life, Jan, can be a tangled web where events impact down the generations. Julia Prendergast, in her novel The Earth Does Not Get Fat, illustrates just how potent the past can be on family and friends. So, Julia, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get into this story completely, one of the more interesting aspects is the structure of this book. It's part novel, part short story collection. Describe what you've done. Yeah. It's a great question, and I, I fought the structure it, it, you know, as I was writing it, and I knew that 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 it would have been simpler if I could write the story in a in a seamless um, voice, uh, but I couldn't. And so, um, in interrogating why that was so, um, you know, I came to the understanding that 
that there's a strong connection between, you know, themes of trauma and memory in the book and, and the fractured structure, so mostly the mother and the daughter's voice, but... But also, you, you do have three narrators mm. going through here, and we move from one to the other. So that sort of creates the impression that are we telling a collection of stories, or is there a continuous narrative? But what it does do is place the emphasis on those issues about memory, about experience, and such like that you've uh, got coming through this novel. Just before we get to the story, then mm. you've also given each chapter a specific title and definition. <laughs> Colour Me Grey is the first chapter, Shades of Grey, The Possibility of Uncertainty. Chapter 2, Sundowning. Sundowning, also known as Sundown Syndrome, a term used to refer to behavioural changes that often occur in the late afternoon or evening in people with Alzheimer's disease and such like. Mm. The reason for putting those specific headings and definitions in? Hmm. I didn't write the um, I didn't write the book in the order that it that it appears in the end. So not only is the structure fractured, but I pref- pref- I like that term fractured rather than discontinuous because I still think there's continuity in fracturing. Um, uh, so when I was toiling with individual chapters, the the titles came out of something that was central to the chapter, and um, and I I tried to find definitions that that resonated with the content. Yes. So each has a thematic concern in Mm. in more ways. So where we're normally used to following a linear narrative or a character through, Mm. we're actually putting more emphasis on some of these concerns. So the story unfolds through three different voices of the three narrators. And the book begins with Chelsea and her struggle. Sometimes mum's already sinking when I get home from school. She takes more pills, washes them down with a few slugs of gin on ice, just a dash of tonic, and finally she's out, flat out, on the couch. After a few hours pass, I know she's down for good. So this is Chelsea, the daughter, (laughs) uh, having to look after her mother, but that's not the only challenge she's got in her life. (laughs) What are some of the other things she's facing? Uh, she also lives with her father's, her mother's father, her grandfather, who's becoming increasingly confused. Um, and I, I was talking to old mate, old mate Bruce Pascoe about this the other day, and um, I'm fascinated by, um, you know, micro, micro world stories, stories behind closed doors about people's inner lives, um, which I think people talk about less and less really now. And um, and I just think that that, that understanding of people and character that we get from from mundane and everyday challenges that, that we face in, in our relationships is fascinates me. Well, Chelsea has uh, an inordinate array of challenges to face mm. because she's looking after a dysfunctional mother. Mm. Uh, so we might admonish the mother initially as a reader. Uh, as you say, Alzheimer's, there's uh, the whole concern about relationships mm. um, and... Um, sexuality that comes out uh, with what Chelsea's dealing with. Mm. I mean, she seems to establish a connection with Jeff, uh, another sort of similar-aged person to herself, but that goes astray as well. He's Mm -hmm. got his own agenda, Mm -hmm. and so that impacts on Chelsea's life, Mm -hmm. So, which is uh, the real challenge, and also a sort of gratuitous sex is in there as well Mm -hmm. what's going on what's going on it's a great question um i mean i think that's for for, for the reader to decide what's going on my in writing it um 
like I said, I have a fascination with the behind closed doors and I think the idea of hidden lives um, in the sense that if we were to meet um, Chelsea, were she real, if we, if, we, if we met her in the street, we, we, would, we, would, we wouldn't have any understanding of what she's contending with behind these and doors. And why she's having sex or why other people want to have sex with her. I think, mm. So there are all of these other stories surrounding it mm-hmm. um, to the point... Well, there's an interesting one encountered with the teacher... Mm-hmm. who has, uh, the teacher has her own concerns about what should be done mm-hmm. and has no appreciation uh-huh. of what Chelsea's going through. Yeah. Um, so we all li- live in different lives, so to mm-hmm. speak, they're not connected. And Chelsea sort of resorts to the gypsy fortune teller. What's <laughs> happening there? Um, I think that, that the fascination with that character or that character was born from the title of the book, The Earth Does Not Get Fat, is actually a, a proverb, an African proverb that means however many people are buried in the earth, the earth is never satisfied. And I thought that that was just such a beautiful um, proverb and, and it's in, in character voice in the, in the in the um, chapter with the gypsy, but also in the story of Annie's childhood, in a, in a childhood story, of, so it comes um, it comes up twice in in very different time frames in the narrative, um, but is also central to the theme of loss and, and trauma in the book. But, but Chelsea's also to, uh, trying desperately to find some sort of answer to yes. her situation mm-hmm. to help resolve it. The na- narration change. Uh, changes we move to pelts mm-hmm. um, and this allows for the arc of the book to go back in time mm. and we start seeing a little more into Annie's life and the the picture starts to come together in many ways mm. as to why Annie's dysfunctional mm. so pelts reveals uh, more about Annie's background drugs Dean Teddy uh, etc what is happening here with with what pelts reveals? Well, I think, um, you know, despite the fact that the, the structure, if you haven't read the book, sounds quite complicated, it's it's not difficult to follow. And I think that at the heart of it, it's a quest story. Um, I, I, it's a, you know, it's Chelsea's quest to uncover um, the details of why her mother is so um, in such a bad way at the beginning of the novel. She thinks her mother's going to die, she, she, so she wants to help her and to, she needs to know her story to help her. So it's a quest story and... Pelts is a man from Annie's past and he can tell, as you suggest, the details around um, uh, why, the spare details around why Annie is the way he is, but he also cares for Annie um, and for Chelsea and then um, we hear Annie's voice at mm. the end and, and yeah. in a way. Um, it's come, well, the connection with Pelts has come through, uh, was it a picture of mm-hmm. uh, characters that, Chelsea didn't even know about. A picture plate um, arrives in the mail. Um, uh, Chelsea opens that and it's a, a, a like a kindergarten picture plate that children make of her family, um, except that there are people in the picture, um, to quote from the book, um, that Chelsea didn't realise were in her family or existed. And so this becomes part of the the questioning and uh, the storytelling that happens by the fire at night with, with pelts and then um, eventually as Annie heals to an extent um she tells her story but annie's life has been full of its own form of dysfunction her mm-hmm. partner dean mm-hmm. uh was hardly um how would you put it uh, <laughs> well, how would you put it he was hardly a great bloke yeah. <laughs> we've got to be polite we can't swear but can't he's basically using annie uh-huh. and prostituting her in a way mm-hmm. what's going on there 
Well, exactly what you suggest is going on there. Um, uh, Dean is 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 also this highly dysfunctional character um, who takes advantage of Annie in in every way possible to um, to fuel a drug habit, and um, and so. You know th- those chapters were actually uh, difficult chapters to write, and and there are there are three voices, as you say. There were actually many more voices, um, but this is much more streamlined and it's much tighter, thanks to University of Western Australia Press. Um, before there were too many voices in the middle, so um, yeah, those chapters were difficult to write, and Pelts was a way of um, bringing them together. But it also raises this whole notion of intergenerational dysfunction. Mm-hmm. That you know, if you have dysfunctional parents it leads to dysfunction in your own life how do you get out of that morass hmm. i don't know i think that's a really great question that, that that goes outside of the book too and i i i see many people survive and and break those chains so i i don't like to think that that that, that that's a closed um that that intergenerational trauma I'm not suggesting that people don't carry and live with um, live with those things and that they don't affect their lives in 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 in, in, in enormous ways. But uh, but I, I do I do think though I, I do think those chains can be broken and that there's um, light for some people. Mm. Mm. Annie takes over the narration then, mm. and um, we encounter her at a hen's party mm. where there's a game to reveal just what type of sex sex acts the hens have encountered in their lives mm. Annie can't tell everything that has happened to her No, it's part of the challenge so it raises the whole notion of the role of sex in the lives of both Annie and Chelsea mm-hmm. but then in society as well and how mm-hmm. it's treated mm-hmm. and how people are um, used, abused, how it be, it's a form of entertainment for some. Hmm. I mean, what what are you trying to reveal here? What are you trying to expose? Um, that's a good question. I, I I think in in that chapter, um, bygones, um, you know, the hen party was it, it was intended to by the characters in that it was supposed to be a fun game, um, um, you know, unraveling um, sexual encounters from from. Um, from their pasts, but as you suggest, for any, um, you know, sex and fun d- just d- don't go together. Um, so. And there's only so much you can actually tell other mm. people about your story, mm-hmm. which is is the frustrating part of mm-hmm. them coming to grips mm-hmm. with what's going in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but Annie's life has actually unravelled because of the loss of her son Teddy, which we find out. Mm-hmm. We then get these issues of blame, guilt, responsibility, which in many ways have been permeating the mm. text all the way through, the novel all the way through. The circumstances, a disinterested, selfish partner, a mother taking time out, are all too familiar. We've actually had stories in the press about our partners and mothers and things going wrong. How much do you want to say about Teddy's death? Um I think the the part of the the trauma for Annie around the loss of Teddy was about her lack of ability to make proactive decisions. Um, um, so she she was uh, in her life in general. She had she really didn't feel like she had um, agency to make decisions. And I think that 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 was absolutely um, at the at the forefront of things 
throughout when Teddy went missing and and after he died. And so I think part of the trauma for Annie is looking back on living with the loss and also looking around on the horror of the loss and realising that there was very little that she could have done. But also then the responsibility mm. for the loss mm. because Dean is implicated mm-hmm. but we never... Well, it's they can't establish mm-hmm. anything, mm-hmm. Uh, etc. So, yeah, you... It's not just the loss, it's the guilt you bear, the Mm -hmm. worry about whose responsibility it was, Mm -hmm. the uh, time you have for yourself, all of those sorts of things. Of course, because um, guilt... Guilt's not logical, so it doesn't. You can feel very guilty when you're not when we're not responsible, and yeah. um, and and then love and and regret come, and all of those issues come in there too. So. The penultimate chapter is the burial of Teddy. Mm. Yesterday I dug a hole for him. Yesterday, and most of the night, my palms are blistered. I'm grateful for the rawness, burning and throbbing like cracked nipples, keeping sleep at bay out in the bay. So. The circumstances around uh, Teddy's burial are mm. unique, to say the least. I think we'll leave the uh, reader uh, and listener to find out for themselves. And then the final chapter is the return. We return to Chelsea as the narrator, uh, and we bring the strands together. And there's a sort of summation of the whole philosophy. I had no one to stand beside me except you, Shells, and you were too small to have planted your roots firmly. Life here is planted on a sand belt. Things give way and come up from under when you least expect it, no matter how strong you are. Mm. So we're leading our lives this way more often than not. So it's not just what's happening to Annie and Chelsea. It happens mm-hmm. to us all. Mm-hmm. So the novel is The Earth Does Not Get Fat. The author is Julia Prendergast. And it's a University of Western Australia publication. I Thank you. love it, the way that both our authors today had to change their book completely. Um, with, uh, with Julie, it was the structure, and with Jenny, it was the colours. Take out the colours. That was one <laughs> of the just, changes. Yeah. Oh, aren't writers clever? They are They can indeed. do that. And, of course, I was speaking with Jenny Ackland about her book, Little Gods, 